The Holy Gospel for today comes from John chapter 14. Jesus said to the disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Creator and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. First, I just want to briefly say a big thank you to all of the kids who are um, participating by leading in worship today. That's not easy to do, and you're all doing a really, really great job. We're proud of you. We're thankful for you, um, and we're glad that you are in this community because we need you, and we're thankful to have you here. The photograph in the Facebook post was pretty. A pile of red rocks balanced at the edge of a cliff, kind of like a miniature version of the jagged rock face opposite it. The stack looked like a small shrine to mountain solitude, carefully balanced at the edge of a precipice. But when Zion National Park posted this photo, it included a request. Please enjoy the park but leave all natural objects in place. Stacking up stones, said the park, is simply vandalism. Really? Vandalism? What's so bad about a small stack of rocks? There are certainly worse things you can do in national parks, activities or intrusions that are much more damaging. Stone stacks have been around forever, prehistoric origins even. They mark Neolithic burial grounds in Scotland. They offer direction points uh, for travelers in Scandinavia. They are shrines to an Incan goddess in Peru. Who knows how many trillions of rocks there are in the world? Certainly piling up a few of them here and there can't cause that much damage, can it? Maybe because of social media and our ever-growing desire to post photos of where we are in the world, This practice of stone stacking has grown exponentially over the last decade. 
what used to be a rare archaeological find or a specific set of directional aids for hikers is now getting lost among the people trying to do something and take a photograph of it to say, I was here and I made this. A few stones here and there add up over time, and they become enough to cause erosion, to damage animal ecosystems, to divert rivers, and to confuse hikers who thought they were looking for a different set of rocks. Even stone stacks that don't cause damage can be a little unsettling if you've hiked to a place that you believe is complete solitude, only to look around and find the evidence of all the people who were here before you. On the other hand, they're just rocks. I mean, how much harm can they do? How much damage can a rock do? Well, let's ask Stephen, shall we? The reading we heard today from the book of Acts comes from the stories of the earliest Christians as they figured out who they were going to be and how they were going to be in the world when Jesus was no longer physically present with them. Last Sunday, we also read from Acts. We read about the way they lived in community together, that they shared their resources. They put everything they had into one sort of pot, so to speak, and then they distributed to whoever had need. Acts has stories like this of great beauty and hope in the ways that the early Christians shared patterns of worship and community and making sure that nobody was left out. But there are also struggles in the book of Acts as the ways of life of these early Christians start disrupting the world around them. Like a rock in the stream, the Christians began to get in the way of the status quo, and some people didn't like it. Saul, for example, who makes a brief appearance in that Acts story, we will know him later as Paul and an avid follower of Jesus, but at this point in the story, he's standing by watching, and later we'll read not just watching but approving, as a young man named Stephen or Stephen is murdered by people throwing rocks at him. How much damage can one rock do? Quite a lot, it turns out. On the other hand, our reading from Peter talks about living stones. Come to him a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. And just for good measure, in Psalms, we got this line, O God, you are indeed my rock and my fortress. Now, I tried out and threw away about 85 rock puns at this point in the sermon, so and give thanks unto the Lord that you are not being subjected to that. There are a lot of them, by the way. Truthfully, you don't need a pun to understand that there's a dilemma here. Is a rock good or bad? Something can be a gift or a curse, a blessing or a burden, a firm foundation or a sharp-edged instrument of violence. What's a cornerstone for one person can become a weapon to another. What looks like a harmless stack of rocks in a park can actually be causing erosion or confusion. How much damage can a rock do? Depends on what you do with it. 
And that brings us to the gospel, where at least on the surface there is not a stone to be had. Instead, Jesus is preparing his friends for his death, for the fact that one day they will not be able to see him or hear his voice or eat a meal with him or listen to him teach. Above all, he wants them, even in the face of this hard thing that they, that they are going to face, he wants them not to be afraid, not to lose themselves in their troubled hearts. He is assuring them over and over again that they will not be alone, that they have what they need. But they, they can't really hear it. They're desperate for something more certain. Perhaps a number of stacked stones on their own route so they can make sure they're going exactly the right way. And in the middle of all that reassurance, Jesus says something that many of us have heard before. Thomas confesses, Look, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How are we supposed to know the way? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, for many Christians, those words of Jesus are a firm, solid foundation, a cornerstone, a reliable and certain rock on which we place our hope. There are words much like other things Jesus has said in this same gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. For others, these words of Jesus are hurled like a weapon against people of other faith traditions or non-faith traditions or anyone who carries questions around in their heads or their hearts about what it looks like to follow a God we cannot see. Jesus is the way to the Father, people will say. He says it right here. No one gets to God without him. So which one is it? Is this stone the beginning of a foundation, a firm footing in a world full of change and chaos, or is it an instrument of violence hurled against someone that you want to shut down or shut up a sign of the very deep divisions among us in these days. We can treat our faith traditions either way, foundation or weapon. But we can do that with a lot of other things too. We can do it with our politics, our understanding of human sexuality, our approach to science, our assumptions about a changing climate, even our family relationships and friendships. The things we hold on to most dearly that we trust our lives with can be used to heal or to harm. And we hold the choice in our own hands like a stone every day. Jesus is talking to his friends when they are really, really anxious. He is, as we said, preparing them for his death, and you can hear in their repeated questions how terrified they are by this prospect. They would like a plan, a list, discipleship for dummies or something. They would like a very clearly marked path about what to do and how to do it. They want Jesus to narrow everything down and put a spotlight on that route so they will never lose their footing or have a doubt again 
about whether they are going the way they're supposed to. But like always, <laughs> Jesus refuses to narrow things down. And instead, he tells them that in God's house, in God's life, there is plenty of room. There's, there's songs that are based on this passage about how someday we'll all have a mansion in heaven. There's many rooms in God's house. And for all that we sometimes think this is a verse about that, Jesus is not talking about life after death. He's trying to help the disciples look for the presence of God in the lives they have right now. Jesus said there's a ton of dwelling places for God in the world. Ways in which God abides with us. By the way, when this Gospel of John first began, that's exactly the way that the Gospel describes Jesus himself. That the Word of God became flesh and dwelled among us became a dwelling place in the world. And so what Jesus is saying is when I die, when I'm not here anymore, God is not going to disappear. You will now be the dwelling places of God. You will do the things that I've been doing. You're going to be the hands and the feet and the heart of God walking around on the earth. This isn't a conversation about life after death. This is a conversation about life today and tomorrow. And the next day. And it's one about how God has room for everyone. And the path is wide. And the stones are a foundation. Never to be used as a weapon. Now it would be easy to point fingers from this room and say, Yeah, but we don't subscribe to the kind of theology that excludes people. So... It's other people who are the problem here. But of course, truthfully, all of us can use even the good things in our lives as a weapon. Our certainty that we have it right can be a closed door in someone else's face. Our belief that the problem is usually with other people can shatter any possibility of a real relationship and change and growth on both sides. Our secret conviction that some people are just too far gone and foolish to bother with can build such a chasm between us that we forget the only way we're ever going to heal this world is by doing it together. The early Christians are telling us to be living stones. Put down the rocks that we are tempted to throw at each other and use them instead to build a foundation, a little bit at a time. To build a house where God abides in a million different ways. Maybe we can let the waters of our baptism wear down our rough, sharp edges a bit. Do not let your hearts be troubled. God dwells in you, in us, in all of us, in every act of creation and reconciliation and hope. We're called to do what we are just now about to sing, to listen to the Spirit's call, crumble the dividing walls, and put down in the deepest ground justice like a base of stone. Amen. Amen.